Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Would you turn back in your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 5? In our last study, we met this man, Belshazzar the king. And we learned that he had likely been an early eyewitness of the events that we have been working our way through in Daniel chapter 1 to chapter 4. And that he have learned about the true God, the God of Israel, the God who wants a living relationship with the people he created, the God who is willing to forgive those who repent of their sins and trust him. But Belshazzar has no desire whatsoever to trust the Lord. So I want to look at just two simple things this morning. I want to see the epitaph that was written. And I want you to note that there is no help for us, for our souls in men. In verse 5 and 6, we read it together. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against the other. Have you ever noticed how quickly how suddenly and how often without warning a person's circumstances can change. Their entire life can change. When I was a teenager, I was friendly with a young married couple who lived just across the road from the church that I went to. And I would often have gone across to their house after church uh, on a Lord's Day evening. Lots of young people would have gone there and we'd have had Christian fellowship and we'd have tea and we'd have biscuits and orange juice. One night I was talking to that lady and she was telling me about her mother. Her mother was quite elderly at the time. In fact, was in the very last months of her life. But she didn't know that. In those days, doctors would often withhold from you the fact that an illness was terminal. This lady had actually asked her doctor, Doctor, do I have cancer? And the doctor had looked at her and with her own interests at heart, his reply was, Well, I'm treating you for a stomach ulcer. Wasn't the whole truth. He was being duplicitous, as I say, with her own interests at heart. And that, I suppose to some extent he wasn't lying because after all, he was actually giving her the same drugs that he would have administered to a person with a stomach ulcer along with other drugs. But that wasn't the point. He was concealing the whole truth from her. And my friend was worried about this. She thought perhaps her mum should be told so that she could prepare herself. They don't do that nowadays, sure they don't. Medical professionals nowadays will tell you sometimes quite bluntly that you have limited time left. They will tell you that you should set your house in order. They will tell you that you should make the necessary arrangements for your funeral. 
And I can only imagine the awful shock it must be to walk into the hospital and to sit down in the doctor's waiting room and to be called into the office and told that life is coming to an end, that you have limited time left, that there's only a matter of days or weeks or months. The sudden shock, the ultimate reality of life will hit you like an absolute hammer. I'm telling you that so that you can imagine what it was like for Belshazzar. Remember, he's having a party. He's binged and he's blasphemed and he's worshipped false gods. And because these gods are the gods of the Babylonians and they're pagan gods, it's highly likely that that worship of false gods would have included human sacrifice and ritual prostitution. And the promiscuous, decadent, debauched orgy was at, at its height. They were drinking, they were cursing, they were blaspheming. When something happened that brought the music to an end, something happened that caused the dancing to cease, something happened that caused the sexual depravity to seem no longer as amusing as it had been. There was this hammer blow of reality, and it was unexpected. I wonder how many have found themselves in that position. The sudden realization that life is short and death is certain bursts into a world of self-indulgent denial. In the case of Belshazzar and his gay party-going crowd of social influencers, business executives, the highest-ranking socialites in the land, it comes in the form of a hand. Not even a hand, just fingers of a hand writing something on a wall, a disembodied set of human fingers and their writing. The party stops like it does for so many people. The party's over. The whole night has been ruined. Everybody in the dance floor is now silent. The bell worshippers and and the pagan god worshippers are hastily redressing and disentangling themselves. The band have laid down their instruments. The hard drinkers are suddenly sobering up very rapidly, not just because the set of fingers writing on a wall is scary enough in itself, but because of the appearance of it all. Look at the text again. And the CMR came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Do you see any mention of a pen? So how is this mysterious handwriting? Now I'm no Aramaic scholar. These Passages of Daniel are written in Aramaic, so it's beyond me. But Stuart Elliot 
commenting on this says the words were not so much written as inscribed into the plaster on the wall. One English translation says they were scratched into the wall. It reads, suddenly a person's hand appeared and began writing on the wall and the fingers scratched words into the plaster. Think about that, it's an inscription on plaster. Historically, we learned that these royal palaces in the ancient Near East would have had a platform along the front, a raised area where all the important people would sit. And they'd have a long table for the king's guests and traditionally that area of the room was well lighted so that the guests could have a good view of the dignitaries, would have seen them in their best light. And the wall behind it was made of white and was meticulously polished so that those special guests would be seen in their very best light. And remember how Jesus described the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 27. When he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whitened sepulchres, tombs, which appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Tombstones were white. What they're looking at here is a portent of death. What they're looking at is a giant tombstone with an inscription looming up in front of them. Is it any wonder the party came to a rapid halt? Out in the graveyard here, there's a headstone over an empty grave with the with the owner of that stone surname already inscribed. I've seen that a few times, different places. I'm told it's because these memorial stones are so expensive that they could actually be stolen. But I wonder how a fact of that must be in reminding the owner that his grave is waiting, that the stone is erected, that his name is marked down for death. In shocking resemblance to a gravestone here. And it's well illuminated. The scriptures make a point here of telling us that this writing was on the wall beside or behind a candlestick so everyone would see it. So we see a sh- sudden shock as the party is brought to an end. We see this sinister resemblance as they realize that what's in front of them is a giant white tombstone with writing like an inscription upon it. And then we see the sheer terror. Look at verse 6. The king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. I wonder what the king's face was like before it became changed. I wonder what the king's face was like as he was partying away with his influential friends. Can you think of his radiant smile as he welcomes all his guests? The smug look on his face 
as he brought the sacred vessels down from the temple and began his drinking game. Can you imagine his lecherous leer as he watched the idolatrous worship of the false gods of wood and stone? God wipes the smile off many a face. His countenance changed. His gay abandon replaced with sheer terror. And look at the effects. It's an innocent wee phrase here in the Bible. It says the joints of his loins were loosed. And thankfully, that's a pretty literal translation of the Aramaic text of this part of Daniel. Because commentators seem to think that that phrase is a colloquialism. It's a form of speech. What they're really reporting here, basically, is that he wet himself. He lost control of his loins, perhaps in more ways than one. And his legs gave way under him. One English translation reads, While the king watched the back of the hand as it was writing, his facial expression changed. Utterly frightened, he lost control of his bowels and his knees knocked together. I think that puts it fairly well. That's fear. That night in Babylon, God spoke to this man, Belshazzar. What we're witnessing here is the last stars of a man who had immense privilege, both in a material sense and in a spiritual sense. This is a man who has witnessed some amazing events. We might even say that he has actually witnessed the miraculous power of God at work at first hand. And yet he is defiantly and consciously turning his back on God. And that brings me to my second point. Because when that moment comes to you and me, there's no one in this world can help you. The fear of the king is compounded by the fact that the words on the wall are indecipherable to him. doesn't know what they mean. But that's why kings have advisors. That's why kings have a privy council, wise men who can help the monarch to read the events that are going on in the world around him and give him wise advice. So the king calls together his men and he makes him this very generous offer, a bounty of great wealth and a place of power, third in position, Nabonidus, the king, Belshazzar, the king regent, and then this person who can work out what this means. Surely one of them can help. But remember what we learned from previous chapters of Daniel. These wise men, they can't help Nebuchadnezzar. They can't help Belshazzar either. The psalmist in Psalm 60 and verse 11. Praise, give us help from trouble. For vain is the help of man. That's the thing about being suddenly confronted with your own mortality. Learning of the certainty of death and eternity. There is absolutely no one on this earth that can help. There's no point in relying any more on your doctor or your spiritual guru or your friends or your family or your pastor. 
The only person who can help you and comfort you on that day is our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that Belshazzar was so greatly troubled? He didn't have that comfort and assurance that Christian believers have in the Saviour. Here's my challenge. Has God been dealing with you in the way he's dealing with Belshazzar? Has he been dealing with you patiently, with great forbearance? Has he been revealing himself to you? Has he been drawing you to himself? And have you been rejecting him? Have you been spurning his love and mercy? Because now is the day to trust him. Before it is too late, before suddenly the grave opens and swallows you up and you're swept out of this world to face the God whom you have offended by your sin. For Belshazzar, it was too late. It's not too late for us. Let us trust the Lord while we are still in time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.